This is the Stand Alone podcast. I've met women in their 40s who are completely controlled by family. I've met people who are forced to marry a particular person because of what a toxic family member wants. This is why I was quite keen to get involved in this podcast. My name's Jay, and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. Be careful about who you approach for help, but know that there's other people out there who are having the same experiences as you. It doesn't make you a bad person for wanting to protect your mental state. I started to do some more reading in terms of my faith. I researched some of the prophets in our faith and a lot of them had to live lives in solitude as well. And they had to undergo a lot of struggles. And I found a lot of similarities between what I've been through and what they've been through. And that brought me a lot of comfort as well. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. I don't have children myself. I'd love to have children in the future. And I just see being an auntie as the next best thing. And it's just incredibly painful that that has been taken away from me so unfairly. Hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. If there's other people who may be listening who were perhaps in the situation that I was around the time that my parents were getting divorced and they're feeling hopeless and feeling like their situation is not going to get better, I think I'd probably want to assure myself back to that time that estrangement is sometimes a good thing and you'll feel better after it. If that's the right choice for you and don't feel guilty about stepping away if you need to. I'm well, how about yourself? I'm good, I'm good. It's been pretty lazy, actually. I just got out of bed about an hour ago. <laughs> so I'm just just having my cup of tea. You need to excuse me because I lost my voice last week, which is why I was quite keen to do this as late as possible. But um, I've still got a bit of a cough. Oh, no. I've got my provisions beside my computer. Our provisions are a cup of tea. Cup of tea, water, lemons, <laughs> everything else. Bless you. I'm sorry that you're having to do this just over being a cold. Not at all. This episode, meet Yasmin. Yasmin is our final participant for the first season of the Stand Alone podcast. There's such an amazing organisation. How did you find out about Stand Alone? I think by chance, actually. I think I was just sort of searching for answers on the internet, trying to find people in similar situations to me. And I just sort of found them just by accident. And I was so excited when I saw, oh, they do workshops in London. So, you've got your tea. I have, yeah. Got your lemon. Mm-hmm. I've got my water, ready to go. The first thing that I asked Yasmin was, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Yasmin. I am obviously Scottish. I'm of mixed race background, half Middle Eastern, half Pakistani. I grew up in Scotland from a very young age in a very conservative Muslim family, and I've been living in a professional role in London for about eight or nine years now. I work as an immigration and asylum lawyer in the legal aid sector. I meet lots of asylum seekers who are separated from their families. I hope that I've been able to bring something to my profession and, and my role 
caring for my clients because I can relate to where they come from when it comes to issues of family estrangement. That's something that another person that we had called Natasha, she was saying that in terms of her profession, she found that she'd been able to learn empathetic qualities from her own experience. Absolutely. I think it helps you to put yourself in their shoes and understand things more clearly from their perspective. I wonder sometimes if had I not been through the experiences that I have been through, whether I would have been a bit more judgmental about some of my clients' experiences. Does your work involve working directly with refugees and asylum seekers? Yeah, it does. I try to help them get legal status in the country. So I deal directly with people who've just arrived in the country and who are fleeing for whatever reasons, political or anything else, and they need to have lawful status here. I really respect you and your work that you do. Thank you. I've worked with, in the past, there's a group up in Sunderland called Friends of the Drop-In. Sunderland's where I'm based. And there's a woman there called Sandra, and bless her, she works tirelessly, like seven days a week, help asylum seekers get refugee status. Mm. And it's often so difficult, harrowing, lots of different languages and all kinds of legal issues. Yes, it can be often emotionally exhausting, but it's obviously very rewarding. It's all I've ever wanted to do, to be honest. It sounds really corny to put it like this, but it's my activism. It gives me a sense of purpose in life. I wasn't ever going to be one of these people who becomes a lawyer just to make lots of money, although that's also really good too if people want to do that. It just makes me feel that I'm contributing something to society by doing the work that I do, hopefully. What would you say are the hardest parts of that role? The hardest parts of my job can be dealing with the emotional side of it and trying to remember that you are not always responsible for the outcome, that the work that we do is very politically motivated, very politically charged, and it can be really emotionally draining when you're dealing with such a vulnerable person and you can't always get the outcome for them that they need despite all your best efforts. And that's unfortunately due to the society that we're living in with legal aid cuts and political parties who have different agendas. Unfortunately, we live in a really xenophobic society and that makes my job very, very difficult. My heart aches for my clients and everything that they have to go through, the rubbish accommodation that they are put in. You know, we wouldn't let animals stay in the accommodation that my clients are forced to stay in, which is often rat infested and I've dealt with terminally ill clients before and they're just put in the most disgusting accommodation, just treated abysmally by the Home Office, lengthy delays on their cases. And it's just it's just so inhumane. And you wouldn't think that a democratic, forward thinking country would treat people the way they do. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Genuinely, it's really important. And if people like you didn't exist, then it would make life a lot more difficult for for everyone going through this experience. Mm. Thank you. I I always feel really uncomfortable when people say that to me because I feel that the real work is my clients, you know, and having to go through that horrific process. And I kind of see them as the heroes in it. I'm happy to do the work and hide in the shadows and let them put their cases forward using me as a medium. But yeah, thank you. I really enjoy my job. Where did the original motivation or inspiration come from? I was born in the Middle East. And I was always conscious from a very young age that I was different because of being from a mixed race parentage. I remember people commenting that my skin colour was different from a young age. 
when the Gulf War happened, my parents were scared that it would come to where we were in the Middle East. So we moved when I was five years old to Scotland. We didn't have any family there. We ended up hanging out with other migrant families. Sometime after I grew up, I learned that many of them were actually asylum seekers. We weren't asylum seekers. My parents were British, but I was conscious that a lot of the people that I was around were asylum seekers and from Libyan backgrounds, Egyptians. And then I remember when the Bosnians came over in the 90s, my parents were quite politically active and making them feel comfortable within the community in Scotland. So I was just constantly surrounded by asylum seekers. I just became really aware of the injustice of what they've been through and just became really interested in their own journeys and their stories, particularly as someone who didn't really fit into the Scottish community, but ironically didn't feel Middle Eastern or Pakistani either. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got this feeling of not fitting in throughout various aspects of your upbringing. Absolutely. As you got older, can you talk me through the experiences of growing up in Scotland and then up to present day? I grew up in a really working class community in Scotland. Most of the community that we were surrounded by were white working class communities. And of course, I grew up feeling quite different and things. It wasn't always negative. It was just something that I was used to. I did well in high school. My parents brought me up with that migrants thing that you should work really hard at school and you change your circumstances yourself and you can only do that through education. So I did really throw myself into my studies and I did well. I was pleased to get a place at university and I studied away from home, which I think was really, really good because I looked around now at people from my community who studied at home and, and I don't think that their personalities developed in the same way that I did because I was able to meet different people and try different things out and as cheesy as it sounds really find myself as a person just from being away from home. I got my law degree and then I moved back to where my family was for about two or three years and that was really difficult to have to go back to the family home after so many years of independence because I felt that there was a lot of restrictions placed in my life as someone from quite a conservative Muslim family. I was quite religious at that time myself, but I still felt that there was a lot of unfair restrictions put on me, maybe because I was a woman. I had a younger brother who wasn't treated the same way that I was. I finally got this amazing opportunity to move to London. I got this great job and I jumped to the chance In my head, I thought, oh, I'll move for a year and then I'll see what happens. But I ended up staying for many years. What I really love about London is that it's just such a melting pot of people. I think there's that famous quote that they give from Paddington Bear. In London, everyone can fit in because everyone is different or something along those lines. And I can really feel that being in London. (laughs) Yes, that's fantastic. I like that quote. That's very good. I wonder then, can we talk about perhaps that, was it a year or two years where you were back at home before moving back to London? Yeah, I was living at home for about two years and it was just a really difficult time in my life. And to be honest with you, looking back, I would probably say I was quite depressed. But in that community that I was living in, within the Muslim community, mental health issues are not really recognised. They would say, oh, you're not praying enough or you're not religious enough, or you need to turn to God more. So there wasn't any question of getting support for mental health issues. My parents were in a really difficult marriage, and 
I often felt that they would drag me into their relationship issues. Somebody in my family had a lot of mental health issues as well. And like I said, because things like that are not recognised or you're not encouraged to get help, it was all kept hush-hush within the family. And it became very difficult for me to deal with because a lot of the burden of dealing with that person was put on my shoulders. I had times where I'd go to people within the community to get help, but I was told to keep it quiet, that it's something to be ashamed of, that I needed to deal with it as the oldest child in the family. And I did. I thought I was being a dutiful Muslim, a dutiful daughter by doing what I was told. It's quite naive now when I think back. Yeah, and there's a duty aspect there, isn't there? But ultimately, there's also the counter of human rights, is that everyone's got the right in Europe to choose their family life. That's a human right that's enshrined in law. And duty, cultural pressure and duty, don't trump human rights in this case. As ever, Becca Bland, the founder and CEO of Standalone UK, offers her thoughts on Yasmin's journey. We all need to have the freedom to be able to remove ourselves from very, very abusive and difficult situations. The sense of duty in South Asian families is very, very strong and it's very hard to step outside of that system. It is a really strong cultural system that traps a lot of people in very abusive and difficult situations. And we work with so many young women, particularly from South Asian backgrounds, who have just for one reason or another felt that they can step out of that and have made very brave choices. But it can be very easy to be dragged back in. It's really important to realise is that honour, shame and the system that surrounds that means that young people can't often speak out about really, really difficult and horrific abusive experiences that they're going through. How would you say your relationship with your your mental health and your faith are now? That's a really interesting question. It's, I've had a, a really long journey since that time. I've changed so much. I've grown so much since that time when I was in my 20s and really struggling with my mental health. I mean, I've been through periods in my life where I felt really resentful to God. I blamed Allah for everything that I've been through. I blamed Allah for the patriarchy within my community that I had experienced, the fact that I had to deal with this unfair burden and people had hidden behind Islam to sort of keep me doing what they wanted me to do. But as I've become a bit better now, I don't see the problem as being my faith. I don't see the problem as being Islam. The problem is people's misconceptions of Islam and patriarchy, actually, and men trying to hide behind Islam to control control women. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that that goes on within my community. As you say, people had hidden behind Islam. There's misconceptions of how faith and being a dutiful Muslim daughter fit together. Are there any instances in particular you'd like to talk about? Yeah, um, I have a family member who's got mental health problems and was quite abusive towards me. I remember when things became unbearable, I went to stay with somebody else, like an older woman and her family in the community. I just couldn't stay at home anymore. I just didn't feel safe and I just didn't feel wanted there. The idea was I was going to stay with her briefly and then go find my own flat because I was working at the time and I could afford to pay rent and stay in a small flat. She's a kind woman and she was trying to do the best 
but it's not, it wasn't the best. But the expression that people will say in the Muslim community is, heaven lies under the feet of your mother. So it's almost making you feel like a bad Muslim by disobeying your parents and that you have to go back and be subservient to them. And that's not what Islam is saying at all. So I did end up going back to my family home and having to tolerate this person who wouldn't get mental health support and who was being really abusive towards me. That made me really unwell being there. And then you mentioned that there were arguments, there were issues between between your two parents. Mm -hmm. When you have somebody in your family who won't get support that they need and who keeps leaning on other family members, that's going to take its toll on the family as a whole. Having a mental health issue is no different from having a physical injury like a broken leg. You wouldn't expect family members to deal with a broken leg. You would go to the hospital and get help. It's unfair for other family members to have to deal with that. Yeah, that that took a toll on my parents' marriage. Uh, it took a toll on me and my relationship with my siblings because we were all pitted against each other and we had to take sides. And it just became a really toxic environment. And I think when I finished my job in Scotland, I was quite keen to move out as soon as possible. And I did look for jobs abroad. In a way, I think I was trying to sort of get away from the problems that I was suffering from. And I felt unable to do that by moving to another part of the town that I was in because of the community who would keep saying, oh, go back to your family home, go back to your family home. My colleagues and I joke that I'm, you know, I'm an asylum seeker (laughs) in London, that I fled the tyranny of my family. Things really came to a head when my parents' marriage started breaking down. As a woman, as the oldest in my family, I was made to feel that I had to step in and deal with everything. My family would say to me, oh, you know, we've paid for you to become a lawyer now, so you have to step in and deal with this divorce. And I'd say, well, it's not my area of law to begin with, and it's also unfair for you to expect me to deal with it. And that that was held against me as well. People in my community would say, oh, you know, your family member's not well. You should just be around them and tolerate them without having any consideration as to the fact that I had no support and the fact that I was struggling, they tried to do that and they, they'd failed, but they were expecting me to do what they couldn't do. I recall walking down the street and I remember having these chest pains. This continued to the point where I would be like struggling to catch my breath. I remember going to like A&E one day, uh, just walking in by myself and saying, I can't breathe, I need help. I was convinced that I had asthma because I was living in London and high pollution rates. The doctors checked me and said, well, there's enough oxygen coming into your lungs. There's there's nothing wrong with you. And it was only like some time after that that I realized, and that was after like waking up in the middle of the night and panicking and things, that I was actually having panic attacks. Very soon after that, I started becoming really tearful. I would have thoughts of ending my life. And it was a close friend, a work colleague, who suggested that I see a therapist. And I remember feeling really dubious about it all at the time. I think it was probably a lot of the conditioning that I had as a child. It almost felt like a pagan thing. I don't need to speak to a therapist and I just need to pray more. I did have Muslim friends at the time telling me, oh, you need to pray more. If you, if you don't feel well, you know, you should try and remember God more. He'll help you. 
I eventually did go and see a therapist. And after about two years, I started to feel well. And I started to have more clarity into why I was feeling the way I was feeling. I mean, I hadn't been brought up to understand my emotions or understand why I was feeling particular things. And one of the most important things I took out of my therapy was being able to recognize why I felt particular emotions and what that related to and trying to listen to my body and listen to the way I was feeling and and just be kinder to myself. I've been brought up in this community where everything was a sin. You know, if you don't do this, it's a sin. If you don't speak to your family, it's a big sin. I tried to revisit my faith then and I stopped seeing everything as being sinful because as Muslims, we're taught that God is merciful and kind and loving and compassionate and he's understanding and he doesn't put trials on you that are more than you can bear. And if I was feeling unwell at having to liaise with my family and taking on a greater role as a daughter and dealing with my parents' divorce, then it was okay to step away. That's not what Allah wanted for me. Allah wanted me to be healthy and happy and it's not fair for me as a, as a daughter to have to deal with the things I was dealing with. And do you feel healthier and happier now? Absolutely. I'm still in contact with one of my family members, but the one who I had a particularly toxic relationship with, unfortunately, things came to a head about two years ago. And I made the decision to go no contact, which was really, really difficult. I still feel guilt about that every so often. And I have to sort of sit with myself and remind myself why I did what I did. You know, this hasn't just been a few weeks of my life. This has been so many years of my life that I've had to tolerate this behavior. And it just made me realize that if someone's not going to get help for themselves, then there's nothing that you can really do to help them. People that I've spoken to throughout this process, including Yasmin, actually, Mm -hmm. she was talking about her family not being willing to confront their own mental health issues. Yeah. And that potentially could be the case for somebody who might be described as toxic. Yeah, I think people who are very damaged and who are suffering with extreme mental health difficulties can create a very toxic environment to be around. And it's absolutely fine to manage your experience and say, I can't be around that because it's having an impact on my mental health. And it's absolutely not okay to ever be abused or be in a situation which is verbally, physically, emotionally, sexually abusive with somebody else. However, I don't think describing somebody as a toxic person is perhaps the right way to go. It doesn't show a lot of compassion because I think those people ultimately are very damaged and they may become from their own damaging background and survived in their own toxic environment, which is what they're acting out further down the line. I think that it's really important for people to break the cycle, therefore, and to distance themselves from toxic environments. It might be in cases where people want to find support that they actually can change some of that toxic behaviour. But I think it's really important to separate the self and behaviour. And a person, I think, therefore, isn't toxic, but the behaviour can be very toxic. The hardest part of going no contact with that family member is that my siblings were sort of forced by that family member to take sides And they made the decision to cut me off as well. And that's been so, so difficult for me. 
my little brother, I, I saw my niece when she was born. She's so beautiful. I held her. I believe she's about two or three years old now. I've not seen her since a few weeks after she was born. I see on social media that my brother's wife's now had another baby. Nobody in the family contacted me to say he's had another baby. And, and it's so, so incredibly painful, particularly because I know that I've done nothing wrong. I really just wanted to keep the family together. I was trying to be a dutiful daughter. And because I wouldn't take sides in my parents' divorce, I've just been cut off and it's it, it hurts so much. So I think in terms of divorce, it can be really, really common for people to be asked to take sides and for children particularly to be split between parents and interests and conflicts. And Yasmin's found herself in a really, really tricky position because ultimately that is going to cause a lot of conflict for her and whichever parent, you know, is asking her to do that. I think what we have to respect is this idea, and this is from Dr Joshua Coleman. Whose advice we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast, particularly in David's episode. This idea of separate family relationships, that we can have relationships with other people in our families, separate to the ones that we have with other people in our families. So it's possible to have multiple relationships and for those to be respected by everybody. It doesn't have to be that one horrible traumatic incident has to take with it an entire side of the family. If we are more enlightened about it, we could allow for everybody to interact as they wish without having to take people out of people's lives. Do you talk about it with with people in your life now? I've learned that I have to be very selective about who I speak to. There's such a huge stigma in my community when it comes to issues of divorce and issues of estrangement, especially from family members. I've learned that when you want to talk about these things, people always have an opinion that they want to give you. And sometimes it's not something that you want to hear. For example, I was talking to a group of friends who I don't really know. You know, a few weeks ago, we all went for dinner. And I mentioned my situation briefly and how my parents had divorced and this particular family member is on their own. And one of the girls who was really well-meaning made a sort of passing comment about how, how difficult it must be for that parent and how, how alone they must feel. And I felt a pang of guilt as a daughter, you know, that I'm almost not doing my duty as a daughter and that maybe I'm a bad Muslim because I'm not fulfilling this duty. And then I reminded myself that that parent has put themselves in this situation where they've pushed everybody away and generally not been a nice, supportive person. It was just a reminder to me that I need to be very selective about who I speak to. And the amount of people that come up to you and say, why don't you just pick up the phone? Or wouldn't it just be nice if you wrote them a letter? All of these things kind of come from the platitudes that we apply because we want things to look how society wants them to look. But unfortunately, it's just not so simple and it's just not fixable by picking up the phone often and writing one letter. Maybe that could be the start of something, but ultimately people don't really understand that that has to come at the right time for you. It can't just come at the right time for them in that conversation because it feels good to say to you. It has to come at a time where you feel ready for that, if you ever feel ready for that ultimately, because that's the ingredient that will make it work. If you're doing it without any wish to do it because it feels like a forced thing to do, then there's probably a wisdom that would say that it may not work as well. 
Although I do suppose that that is coming from a place of intended sympathetic outreach. Yeah, I think a lot of people do want to sympathise, but it's hard for them if they haven't been through it to know what Mm. to say. And that's one of those instances where people really sometimes get it wrong for people. And it can end up being a lot more frustrating than it is supportive. One thing that I found to be quite helpful is, maybe it's an awful thing to say helpful, but everything that's gone on with Meghan Markle, it's a good way of gauging how people feel about family estrangement. You can mention her situation with her father. People are always wanting to give you their opinions, but you can often tell from the way people respond to that, how they feel about family estrangement and whether they can accept that things are not always so straightforward where you can continue to have a relationship with a family member. Mm. Oh, Megan, what a difficult situation. Megan's been through a really difficult estrangement with her father who didn't come to her wedding and I think after that sold some quite sensitive information in terms of a reconciliation letter to the press. A really volatile and difficult situation obviously had a really heavy emotional toll on Meghan Markle. I wrote an article about it in Grazia. It will show you more about my view on Meghan. But I'm just very sympathetic towards her. I think it's an incredibly difficult situation. But the idea of Yasmin, she's using that experience as a coping tactic. What do you think of Meghan Markle as a way of questioning whether she'd go into her estrangement with somebody else? Yeah, I mean, that's a nice starter for 10 of like what their views and beliefs may be. Yeah, it breaks the ice a little, doesn't it? And it lets you know a little bit about their values around those kinds of things if they've heard about it. So yeah, a really nice tactic there, I think, from Yasmin. People are always wanting to try and fix my situation for me, but it can't be fixed. And I've, I've tried for so many years and I just want to continue and live my life peacefully without feeling unwell people are not always going to understand that unfortunately and you mentioned as well that this person who'd said something about gosh your your parents must feel this way you said that they were well-meaning and well-intentioned yeah absolutely because when i look around the muslim community i mean there's just such a strong sense of family and it's very rare for me to meet other people in my situation and when i have met other muslim girls who have very similar toxic family situations to me, they tend to endure that situation, which I did for many, many years. And I can see how it impacts their mental health and their progression in life. I mean, this is why I I was, I was quite keen to get involved in this podcast, because I think it's really problematic within our community. There's a lot of spiritual abuse. There's a lot of emotional abuse that comes from family members and elders and Asian community who will put pressure on young people to do a particular thing and they'll hide behind Islam to make sure that they do that because nobody wants to be seen as a bad person. Nobody wants to be seen as a bad Muslim. Everybody wants to try and do their best to you know, be respectful of their parents. But that shouldn't mean that you lose your autonomy and you know, forced to live in a particular way, which is against your will or that is to the detriment of your mental health. Would you mind, because I've not come across the term itself, what did you mean by spiritual abuse? Spiritual abuse is when people use religion to make you behave in a particular way. 
now you're seeing it a lot in the Muslim community with the rise of like celebrity sheikhs, if you like, you know, people who do all these YouTube videos and they're seen in high regard as someone who's very knowledgeable. You go to someone like that for advice. Often they don't have the experience or the knowledge to be able to give you advice, but a lot of the times people will. They can guilt trip you into behaving in a particular way make you feel that you have to take a particular course of action because that's what the Prophet, peace be upon him, who we follow as Muslims would do. I'll give you an example. I spoke to a head of the mosque, an imam, when I had lots of my family issues and they would say to me, oh, but, you know, you have to respect your family as a Muslim. That's what you should do. And they would give me examples from the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where people respected their family and that's what made me go back to that situation. But what they didn't tell me is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not have to put up with the kind of abuse that I had to tolerate. And I really believe at the time of the Prophet, had I gone to speak to him, for example, for advice on my situation, he would have told me to, to protect myself, mm. just to stay away. Would you like to go more into that relationship with you and your brother? He cut me off really, really suddenly. I remember it was one Sunday. I had some work to do. I was actually in the office and I was typing away. And the toxic family member had told my brother that something that was really, really untrue, just so ridiculous that I was basically sending pictures of his child to somebody. And it really, I mean, it really, really, I, I was not, I hadn't done that at all. And he sent me a message saying, I heard that you've been sending pictures of my child to this person. And I said, no, I haven't. And I was trying to call him. I was trying to call his, his wife. Neither of them were picking up. And he was saying, promise me, promise me you haven't. I said, I promise. And he literally sent me a message and said, I don't believe you. You're a liar. Don't ever contact me again. And he literally blocked me on all mediums, on social media, on my phone. It's been over two years now since that happened. I actually tried to call him this year in February and when he realised who it was on the phone, he just hung up and he blocked my number. There's only a few people in my life who know about that because the story sounds so ridiculous, so made up that I don't, I don't think anybody would believe me if I told them that this is why my little brother has cut me off. Sorry. Please don't apologize. But after that incident, all the feelings that I'd worked through before of feeling suicidal that I thought I'd dealt with all came rushing back after that incident. And I just thought family is supposed to be loving and kind and supportive. And if this keeps happening, if these kind of interactions keep happening to the detriment of my health, I just can't continue. I just can't. I've been so blessed by Allah because I found family and other people. You know, I've got the most amazing friends who are my family now, who are my sisters, my brothers. You know, I've got my friend's mother who's adopted me as though she's my mother. And she is, she's been amazing. You know, they had me over for Eid, which is like a Muslim celebration at the end of the fasting period. And they're just such amazing, loving and kind people. And I just thank God that 
I have these people in my life, but it does hurt because I just think I like to think that I'm a kind person who helps people and I don't know why I can't have a relationship with my with my family, my my blood family. And I try and tell myself that I'm bigger than this stigma in our community, but it does get to me. The loneliness is the hardest. It really does feel really lonely. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I just, I just miss my niece. I just miss my niece and I worry about what they're saying about me to her and what she's going to grow up with. I always dreamed about having a good relationship with her and doing things with her. I don't have children myself. I'd love to have children in the future. And I just see being an auntie as the next best thing. And it's just incredibly painful that that has been taken away from me so unfairly. When we were growing up, my toxic family member wouldn't let me have a relationship with my aunts and uncles and would say all kinds of horrible things about them. During the time of my parents' divorce, I did seek out my aunts and uncles. Lo and behold, they turned out to be lovely people, really, really lovely people, really kind and gentle people. And it turns out that that toxic family member is the problem in my family and not any of them. But the problem was that by the time I connected with them, I was an adult, you know, because my uncles are quite conservative. It's almost like they didn't really know what to do with me. They didn't know how to react with me. They felt uncomfortable hugging me, you know, because they're quite religious. And even though I'm their niece, to them, I was just a grown woman, a stranger. Although they've been loving and kind and supportive, it's difficult to try and have this relationship now as adults. I'm not at this stage where I could pick up the phone and say, oh, I feel quite lonely. Can I come and spend time with you, for example? But like you were saying, you make your own families. And you've found friends in your life that have become like that. Yeah, absolutely. Through my journey, I've realized that so many people have problems with family members. Nobody ever really wants to talk about it. Some have more severe experiences than others. You know, I've got colleagues and friends whose parents don't like their spouses and, you know, all kinds of things happen. So, yeah, it's not just me. We're coming up to the Muslim holiday of Ramadan soon. This year, the month of Ramadan begins on April 23rd, and in the fourth episode of the Standalone podcast, we talked a lot about how to deal with Christmas, when we're often surrounded by lots of family imagery, whether that's a holiday you celebrate or not. So I was intrigued to ask Yasmin about how her experience of religious holidays as a Muslim is affected by her estrangement. So as Muslims, we fast for a month. We break fast every day. At the end, we have the Eid celebration at the end of the fasting. It's a really interesting thing, fasting, because you're kind of in this exhausted state of being really alert and being quite emotional and being very in touch with your feelings. So it's an incredible time for reflection and for me to get closer to God and to think about what I've been through and just feel grateful for what I have. I'm living in a flat share in London and my flatmate is not a Muslim and she works long hours and stuff. So Ramadan was really difficult last year because 
you're coming home and I'd cook and then I would just break fast by myself. And because the days are so long, we fast from dawn to dusk every day. So that changes every year because we follow the lunar calendar, which is 11 days earlier every year. So because Ramadan falls in the summer this year, it meant that we were breaking fast quite late in the evening. So it's quite difficult to go and meet friends and then come back home because you're so exhausted after a day of fasting. So breaking fast at the end of the day by yourself is really, really difficult. In terms of like the celebrations and stuff, like I said, I've got loads of amazing friends who've almost adopted me like as a sister and as a daughter. So I've enjoyed going to spend Eids with them. And it's been really great, actually, because when I grew up, my toxic family members used to make life really difficult for me. Eid was never a happy time. But it's now good as an adult. I can spend Eid with the people that I want to do fun stuff and just feel relaxed and not feel on edge. So Eid has been a lot better now as an adult than it was as a child. Off the back of that, in regards to advice, and thank you so much for doing so, I'm hoping that with this podcast we are helping those who listen. And mm. Is there anything that you might have done differently that you wish you'd known about at that time? I think I would have had more confidence in my convictions if I could and not run around and try and look for answers from other people who couldn't give me the answers. I mean, I knew many, many years before that I needed to cut ties with that family member. During the time that I'd moved back to my family home after being at university, I had to leave very briefly and I stayed with someone in the community and they said to go back. I should have stuck to my guts and not gone back and just moved out for good. But instead, I went back and there was many, many years of abuse and that cycle of having to put up with a lot. And I just wish that I just stuck to my guts and just moved away, had the strength to just go things alone. But I guess I had to have all that life experience in between to know that what I was doing was right and that I shouldn't feel guilty. I think that's another thing. Don't feel guilty about your choice of being away from a toxic family member. How about moving forward? Is there, is there anything that you're looking forward to at the moment? I mean, I always tell myself that I know this is like the long term future, but I hope to meet someone and have my own family in the future and do things differently, be a different role model to my children in the future. I think people always say in my community that they, they seem to think that if you have these experiences in your life, that it's a cycle that's going to continue in the future. But that's not the case. You make a choice to be happy. And that's why I stepped away from my family member, because happiness is a decision that you make. And, I, and, I, and that's something that I really, really want for my future. I just look forward to being the best lawyer I can be to my clients and hopefully future legal challenges that will benefit my clients hopefully meeting someone in the future and having my own family and having a hopefully a, a nice wonderful life <laughs> thank you that's that's so lovely anybody that has put themselves in the position Yasmin's put herself in in terms of moving to a different country and establishing a new life with a complete different value system I think obviously has a lot of strength and it will help her in her life and inform her choices and decisions ultimately. Okay, thank you very much and thank you for doing this. It's really helpful, really good work. We, we, we know why we're doing this, don't we? It, it's the hope that someone will take something away, whatever that is. 
that they might not have thought about. Yeah, it's just so easy to get bogged down by these things. And I just hope that everyone's going to be okay. Other people in in my situation are going to be okay during this period. (coughs) Uh, The cough's coming back. Oh no, what are you up to for the rest of the day? Um, I'm actually working, believe it or not. I've got my files ready to work. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I'm not going to go out when I'm feeling like this. Bless you. Well, I hope you at least take it easy. Cheers. Thank you very much. A pleasure. All the best. Bye. Bye -bye Bye-bye-bye. Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue. And it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. You have been listening to our final episode of the first season of the Standalone Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Whether, like Yasmin or our other nine guests, you shared your experiences with us, whether you got in touch with us, it's been wonderful to read comments from everyone who's listened and left comments, or whether you've just been listening. Thank you. We hope that this series can be a useful resource or guide that it might help you in your own journey in some way. If you've been able to take away anything from this series of podcasts, any advice from our participants or thoughts you've been able to unpack, then please do consider helping us out in return. If you were to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts, it could really help this podcast reach more people. And as always, the best way to get in touch with us if you have any thoughts about the podcast series we've already made or what you'd like us to be doing differently in the future, you could get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at UK Stand Alone. That's all from our first season. But season two of the Stand Alone podcast will be releasing starting this summer.
If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page at UK Standalone to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.